This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racism, anti-Semitism, and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a warm evening in May of 1982, Michael Wayne Ryan shuffled into a community hall in Nebraska, The burly-bearded man had come for a sermon and sat in a growing crowd of fellow working men, all of whom were in desperate need of prayer. Jobs were scarce, farms had been lost, and the man at the lectern was determined to give them a gift, somebody to blame. Within minutes, the crowd was on its feet. Ryan couldn't help but be swept up by the passion in the preacher's voice. But after the service, he turned the troubling message over in his head The supremacy of white Christians? Jewish-run banks? Government conspiracies? On his way to the door, he asked the reverend straight out, how could he prove it? In response, the preacher handed him a Bible and told him to give it some thought. He did. Two years later, Michael Ryan would commit some of the grisliest slayings the Midwest had ever seen and proclaim himself an angel for doing it. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This week, we'll focus on white supremacist cult leader Michael Ryan. In the early 1980s, Ryan went from a frustrated, directionless slacker to the leader of a violent cult composed of down-on-their-luck farmers. 
Next week, we'll focus on Michael Ryan's survivalist compound on a farm in Rulo, Nebraska, and the heinous acts he committed there. Michael Wayne Ryan had a rough start to life. He would later say he was scarred by abusive behavior from his mother, Elsie, at an early age. As a child, his infant brother accidentally choked to death, and Ryan was blamed for it. It's unclear exactly what kind of abuse Ryan suffered or how severe it was. Some would later claim it caused him to develop schizophrenia. Regardless, Ryan's early life was fraught. He got poor grades in high school and eventually dropped out without graduating. But no matter how many times he failed, he always had an excuse. Ryan blamed his teachers for his awful performance and called them liars when they protested. His classmates even described him as a low-average individual. When he entered his teens, he shot off two toes of his left foot in a quail hunting accident. Though most of his peers ridiculed him for his reckless antics, some found his brash, oblivious confidence endearing. On his first date with a girl named Ruth, the pair stole gasoline from a local farm. Romance blossomed from there, and by his early 20s, Ryan and Ruth were married. Throughout the 1970s, he worked a variety of odd jobs, but had difficulty keeping them for any length of time. Pool cleaner, gas station attendant, cement worker, None of it stuck. On top of everything, Ryan became a father. With his family and his responsibilities growing, Ryan tried to join the army, but according to author Rod Colvin's Evil Harvest, they rejected him because of an undescended testicle. Trucking, the only job Ryan ever liked, ended in disappointment too. In 1978, while he was attempting to fasten a tarp to his truck in a storm, a violent gust of wind blew Ryan to the highway pavement. The fall ruined his spine, and he required back surgery to correct the damage. His spine healed, but long trips sitting in a truck became too painful for him to bear. His income dried up, and 34-year-old Ryan began spending more and more time at home. In chronic pain, Ryan began abusing painkillers, and his dark moods grew more frequent. Then his body reacted poorly to his back surgery medicine, causing him to lose his teeth. He was unable to afford proper dentures, so he went toothless. By May of 1982, Ryan and his wife Ruth, now with three children, were financially destitute. That month, they moved into a vacant farmhouse in the small town of Whiting, Kansas. They paid no rent, but also had no running water. With Ryan still out of work, arguments at home were near constant, shouting, bruises, and always excuses. Evil Harvest, a detailed account of Ryan's life by author Rod Colvin, reported Ryan's wife as saying, Mike had a terrible, terrible temper. Nothing was his fault to hear him tell it. It was always someone else's. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. It's possible Michael Ryan was employing a psychological phenomenon known as blame shifting. Blame shifting was a term first coined as a defense mechanism by Austrian-British psychoanalyst Anna Freud. By her definition, blame shifting occurs when a person transfers their own unwanted thoughts, feelings, or motives to another person. 
sometimes referred to as projection, blame-shifting one's undesirable notions onto another person lets an individual not be accountable to their own thought process. Michael Ryan habitually blamed others for his own actions to deflect the bitterness and anger brewing in his own personal life. The accident, his family's financial condition, Ryan's mind lashed out at any target he could find. But even with this simmering frustration and domestic aggression, Ryan was just barely able to hold himself together. He needed one final push to really explode, a push which came at church. One evening in May of 1982, in a packed community hall in Nebraska, the self-proclaimed Reverend James Wickstrom was preaching to convert, and Michael Ryan was listening intently. Wickstrom was the national head of the Posse Comitatus Movement, an ultra-right-wing paramilitary organization. Founded by Henry Lamont Beach and William Potter Gale in the late 1960s, Posse Comitatus was anti-government, anti-tax, and anti-Semitic. Beach was an ex-dry-cleaning executive and Hitler worshiper. Gale was director of guerrilla operations in the Philippines in World War II. James Wickstrom, already indoctrinated in fundamentalist and right-wing beliefs, became their loyal disciple. Throughout the 1970s and early 80s, now the head of his own flock, Wickstrom combed revival tents and community halls across the nation, searching for receptive audiences. And on that fateful evening in Nebraska, the crowd of farmers and laborers leapt to their feet at Wickstrom's impassioned sermon. Times were hard on the Plain States in the early 80s. Many of the men and women sitting in the hall had lost their jobs or their farms. The poor were getting poorer, and no one seemed to care. But this preacher was different. It seemed like he was speaking directly to Michael Ryan. To see them in person, the two men couldn't have been more different. The man at the podium was short, middle-aged, with a hefty, round face, wearing a blue leisure suit. Ryan, on the other hand, was burly, 6'2", barrel-chested, with a dark beard and a tight crew cut. And Wickstrom wasn't the kind of person Ryan would usually respect. Still, Ryan had made the drive to hear him speak and could feel the excitement building around him. As told by author Rod Colvin, Wickstrom asked the room, You're all hurting here, aren't you? You're afraid your turn might be coming up. I'm here to tell you that God knows it isn't right. According to Wickstrom, war between good and evil was at hand and would soon visit the fields of Nebraska. Michael Ryan wasn't immediately convinced. At first, Ryan thought Wickstrom was simply another con man preaching easy, no-fail solutions. But the fiery sermon changed his mind. The thrust of the Reverend's doomsday prophecy forecasted a battle of Armageddon between white Christians and Jewish people. The righteous needed to prepare. They needed to stockpile arms and ammunition. Preaching to the room of mostly farmers, Wickstrom shouted anti-Semitic slurs and cherry-picked passages from the Bible to support his conspiratorial, racist views. The message resonated with Ryan, who already had a history of anti-Semitism. In his search for work, he'd once had an altercation with a Jewish employer. The two had almost come to blows. Ryan screamed at the man, if you don't shut your mouth, I'll shut it for you with my fist. 
Interestingly, group dynamics can often mimic the personal blame-shifting or projection that Ryan was used to, especially when those groups hold virulent anti-Semitic views. Dr. David Sherman, an expert in anti-Semitism and psychoanalytic history, noted, There's a common mechanism of psychological defense employed by a majority group that feels its collective to be threatened. The narcissistic rage of the group precludes empathy. The offender appears as a malevolent force whose sole purpose is to destroy one's most precious asset. All manner of evil is then perceived in the dissenter. That evening, in his furious sermon, James Wickstrom likened Jewish people to, quote, seeds of Satan, and laid the suffering of every person in that hall at their feet. He claimed the coming battle would welcome a new era where the white Anglo-Saxon, God's true chosen people, would rule the world. The racist philosophy James Wickstrom championed was called Christian identity and was very popular among extreme right-wing hate groups in the 1980s. According to the Anti-Defamation League, Christian identity adherents believe whites of European descent can be traced back to the lost tribes of Israel. Often paired with a distrust of government and authority, Christian identity has influenced virtually all white supremacist and anti-government movements since. It has informed criminal behavior, ranging from hate crimes to acts of terrorism. And on that May evening in 1982, it wormed its way into Michael Ryan's psyche. After the sermon, as Ryan exited the packed hall, he mulled over what he'd just seen and heard. He was impressed with Wickstrom. The Reverend was a strong speaker, and the crowd gathered around him was proof his words had broken through. Stopping to speak with him on the way out, Michael Ryan looked to rid himself of any remaining skepticism. Could Wickstrom prove what he'd said? Wickstrom gestured to his copy of the Bible. He didn't need to prove himself. Everything he said was in its pages, if Ryan looked hard enough. Throughout the hot summer months of 1982, Wickstrom's sermon remained in Ryan's head. Ryan was intrigued by its message, but he'd been raised a Baptist, and the Old Testament stated the Jews were the son of Israel, not white Anglo-Saxons, as Wickstrom and Posse Comitatus claimed. Ryan wondered to himself, had his own religion lied to him? Just like his teachers, who'd kept him from graduating from high school? or the army that said it had a place for him and then rejected him just the same? It's possible that the blame-shifting defense mechanism Ryan had engaged in all his life was working in tandem with the reverend's message. That 4th of July, Michael Ryan's obsession continued to grow. Then, Ryan's brother-in-law, the man who initially introduced Ryan to the white supremacist group, received an invitation. A local farmer had obtained one of the group's promotional videotapes, Ryan and his wife were invited to watch. Michael Ryan and his wife Ruth agreed and went to the farmer's home. Their host had been holding posse comitatus meetings since the late 70s. He was particularly fired up about the group's anti-government beliefs. But Ryan was fixated on the religious message. As James Wickstrom ranted, Ryan followed along with his Bible. At one point, Wickstrom quoted a passage from Luke. Slay the enemy at thy feet. He insisted the battle of Armageddon would be a battle of good versus evil, God versus Satan. 
and Satan's evil allies, the Jews. Wickstrom referred to God as Yahweh, a term used in the Old Testament, one so sacred Hebrews would not speak it aloud. The Posse Comitatus had co-opted the sacred name of their supposed enemy's deity as their own. Michael Ryan was spellbound by the new doctrine. Slamming his fist into the arm of his chair, he proclaimed, Yahweh says we have to find the truth. Perhaps even more significant was Michael's wife, Ruth's, reaction. For so long, she'd been on the receiving end of her husband's anger. So many threats, kicks, and punches. But now, he was passionate about something. His eyes had a different look. And Ruth was drawn in by Wickstrom's words as well. She'd even taken notes. The way Ruth saw it, life had dealt her more than her fair share of blows, too. Her parents were gone at an early age. Her income was stretched further every time Ryan lost another job. It felt good to have someone to blame. By the time the two got back home, they were in a near frenzy. They pored over the pages of the Bible for days with little sleep. Ruth was happy they were growing closer, and Ryan was brimming with a newfound sense of empowerment. Neither knew he was only two years away from gruesome acts of torture and murder. Coming up, Michael Ryan meets his mentor and becomes a divine lie detector. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1982, 35-year-old Michael Ryan and his wife Ruth became committed to the white supremacist philosophies of Posse Comitatus. At the urging of Reverend James Wickstrom, by the fall of that same year, Ryan began forming his own interpretations of biblical texts. He started spending more and more time praying to Yahweh. That November, Ryan joined his brother-in-law on another pilgrimage to Hiawatha, Nebraska, he was desperate to hear James Wickstrom preach again. On this occasion, the cathedral was a bedroom in a Best Western motel. Before the pair met up with Wickstrom, they had to be cleared by his bodyguard and lieutenant. Nicknamed Dead Fred because of his expertise in weaponry and explosives, the man brusquely escorted them up to Wickstrom's room. Ryan and his brother-in-law sat reverently on one of the room's two double beds, while James Wickstrom held court on the edge of the other. After a while, Wickstrom fixed his gaze on Ryan and said, It's time you got straight with Yahweh. Wickstrom asked Ryan to stand up, extend his right arm, and hold it steady. Wickstrom then placed one hand on Ryan's right arm and the other on his left shoulder. Wickstrom lowered his head in prayer and asked a question. Yahweh, God, are Mike Ryan and James Wickstrom clean enough to speak with you? The reverend pushed down on Ryan's arm. It didn't budge. Ryan could only laugh. He had no idea what the man was doing. Wickstrom fired off another question. Was Michael Ryan in need of five days of fasting and repentance? He pushed on Ryan's arm again. 
This time it went down. To Ryan, the give felt completely involuntary. Wickstrom proceeded to ask his convert a series of rapid-fire questions. Did Ryan need more than five days of fasting? Ryan's arm went limp. More than two days, Ryan's arm began to rise. Three days, the arm continued floating up. Four, it immediately dropped. The reverend proclaimed with a flourish, three days of fasting and repentance. Ryan couldn't believe what he had witnessed. The reverend explained that he had just directly communicated with God, then confided in Ryan, it's not something I do for just anyone. The arm test, as it was called, was actually derived from a technique various religions used to test the purity of food. In the Old Testament of the Bible, the test would often be used to check whether food had spoiled. If the food had gone bad, it would sap the person of their strength and their arm would fall. If it was pure, the arm would go up. But Wickstrom's technique had an added twist. In his version, regardless of whether the arm rose or fell, he was free to interpret the result in whichever way suited him. After seeing Ryan aghast to the test, his brother-in-law Steve Patterson was eager for his turn. But instead, Wickstrom excused himself from the room. It was difficult for Patterson to hide his disappointment. Ryan, however, was still in awe. He didn't realize it at the time, but Wickstrom had just provided his protege with a tool he would use to intimidate, terrorize, and even justify murder. After Ryan's one-on-one session with James Wickstrom, he became a familiar face at Posse Comitatus meetings, gradually forming a powerful connection with his mentor. He often received front-row seats at lectures. He purchased several of the preacher's audio cassettes. He wanted to learn as much about Yahweh's commands as possible. Ryan had always felt the world was aligned against him. But as he attended Posse Comitatus rallies and retreats, he gradually felt superior to those he believed were keeping him down. Knowing who and what to blame had brought him focus. He was God's chosen, not those who stood in his way. The deeper Ryan became immersed in Christian identity philosophy, the more his selfishness increased. According to psychologist Alfred Adler, the first to coin the term superiority complex, people with this complex have an exaggerated opinion of themselves. They believe their abilities surpass those of others. Ryan's superiority complex and the blame shifting we mentioned earlier were only heightened by the tenets of Christian identity and the Posse Comitatus cult. Ironically, the idea of superiority often drives both the cult leader and its followers. Professor Mikael Heller states in his study titled Miracle, Mystery, and Authority that a superiority complex is encouraged among cult members. The power and control they feel over their lives is then shifted to the cult leader. As Ryan's arrogance grew, he began manifesting the attributes of both a cult follower and leader. Soon, Ryan formed a group of his own within the white supremacist movement. During a November rally in 1982, Ryan introduced his wife to Reverend Wickstrom. She was equally impressed with him in person. Ryan also met like-minded believer, 24-year-old Jimmy Haverkamp. Like Ryan and many attendees at these rallies, Jimmy Haverkamp had been drawn to Wickstrom's message during a time of personal struggle. 
Haverkamp was from a town of under 30 in northeastern Kansas. His business was failing, debt was taking its toll, and his marriage was unraveling. Haverkamp felt like his world was on the brink of collapse. In his mind, Wickstrom's doomsday prophecy was the next logical step. Both gun enthusiasts, Haverkamp struck up a conversation with Michael Ryan about a Ruger Mini-14 rifle he just acquired. The two would talk more about guns that evening at Michael Ryan's first survival training camp, conducted by James Wickstrom's bodyguard, Dead Fred. The training took place on a secluded farm in Westmoreland, Kansas, a short drive from the previous day's rally. There, at the initial orientation, Michael Ryan met 30-year-old David Andreas and 24-year-old James Thim. The introverted Thim and the good-looking Andreas were close friends. Like most of the men there, Andreas was originally drawn to the Posse Comitatus because of his failing farm and had convinced Thim to come along to a handful of meetings. They'd quickly become regulars. That evening, Dead Fred drilled the men on the coming Battle of Armageddon and what they'd need to do to be ready for it. How to stockpile food, how to hunt and eat wild animals. But most of the seminar hinged on weaponry and explosives and how to get your hands on them. Ryan chimed in often, and the others were impressed with his knowledge of firearms. More than that, they admired Ryan's self-assuredness. Instead of sleeping inside, Ryan took his sleeping bag and spent the night in the freezing temperatures. The next morning, as Ryan was leaving, Andreas and Thim asked how they could get in touch with him. According to author Rod Colvin, Ryan barked back, You can go through Steve Patterson. If you come driving into my yard at night, you're liable to get your dicks blown off. In the ensuing months, Michael Ryan went on a mission to win the respect of his new acquaintances. Shortly after the survival camp, he started a cleansing fast. It was what James Wickstrom suggested he do. But as far as Ryan was concerned, it was a commandment from Yahweh himself. Ryan's need to show his commitment to the war god Yahweh ran so deep, he fasted for three days. By the end of it, he was so weak from lack of food, he was delirious. When he tried to grab his chainsaw to cut some wood on the farm, he found he could barely lift it properly. Nevertheless, he tried to carry out the chore anyway and almost amputated his own legs. However, as Michael Ryan's zeal to prove his devotion to Yahweh intensified, his brother-in-law Steve's jealousy did as well. It had been building ever since the first intimate meeting with Wickstrom at the Best Western. Steve had brought Ryan into the fold and was bitter that the Reverend hadn't lavished personal attention on him. Ryan could sense the tension. It made him angry, and he took it out on his brother-in-law in a series of petty grievances. When he and Steve's family planted a vegetable garden together, Ryan accused them of stealing all the potatoes. Soon, Ryan began to ask himself whether he needed a man like Steve Patterson in his life at all. But he was family. If Ryan was going to cast him out, he needed to be sure his instincts were correct. One evening, in the spring of 1983, Ryan told his wife they needed to have an important conversation. First, he needed to make sure she wasn't menstruating. According to Wickstrom, women who had their period were not spiritually clean. Once he was sure she was spiritually clean, Ryan had Ruth hold out her arm. 
Ryan put his hand on hers, then asked a series of questions. Were they clean enough to speak with Yahweh? He pushed down on her arm. It held firm. Should he try to patch things up with Steve? Her arm drifted downward. Should they be friends again? Her arm dropped further. Ruth had never done the arm test with her husband before, but she liked it. It connected her even more closely to him, and Ryan was happy to have his answer. Steve Patterson was out. Ryan immediately cut off all contact with his brother-in-law. Yahweh had spoken. His self-confidence and faith in Yahweh growing, Ryan began to spend more time with the other members of the Posse Comitatus. He started attending Bible study with James Thim, David Andreas, and Jim Haverkamp. More than anybody else in the movement, they showed him respect. But gradually, during the spring of 1983, a divide formed at the regular Posse Comitatus meetings. Many who came to the gatherings complained about taxes and the economy. They wanted to talk about crooked banks and the Constitution. Ryan came for another reason, to affirm his commitment to Yahweh. He wasn't a farmer and didn't want to be distracted by debt or foreclosures. As time went on, his attendance at the meetings began to ebb. Many of the veteran members thought it was just as well. Not everybody was taken with 34-year-old Michael Ryan. One local farmer said he was just a windbag. Nate Babcock, the man who once invited Ryan to his home to watch that first Wickstrom videotape, now claimed he just wants to be an authority, control everything. But Ryan's tight-fisted control over his environment came with a cost. Since he'd used the arm test to eliminate his brother-in-law, Steve, from his life, he'd lost a trusted ally. He tried to fill the void with Jimmy Haverkamp instead. Haverkamp already admired Ryan. He believed that if Yahweh was telling Ryan things personally, like not to trust Steve Patterson, he must be something special. Plus, Jimmy loved talking guns with him. Ryan had recently started referring to the coming Armageddon as the Battle of the Wheat Fields because Ryan was certain it would occur right there in Kansas. Jimmy wanted to be ready. He'd spent most of his money on guns, and he enjoyed strategizing with Ryan, who'd started claiming he was an ex-Green Beret. Of course, Ryan had never served in the military, nor was he with the CIA, nor had he lost his toes in Vietnam, as he now boasted to his new friends. Ryan had always had an elastic relationship with the truth. The lies gained him the trust of fellow Posse Comitatus members, who shared his dedication to Yahweh's coming war. As Jimmy and he grew closer, David Andreas and James Thim joined the circle too, in deference to his relationship with Wickstrom and his strategic plan for the battle to come, they saw Ryan as their leader. What's more, Ryan had communicated directly with Yahweh, and Yahweh had told him what they needed to do. That spring of 1983, Ryan told the three men what he believed would be the next step in preparing for the battle. Because everything belonged to Yahweh, everything belonged to them as well. If they needed guns or food or ammunition, they should simply take it. Andreas, Haverkamp, and Thim let the directive sink in. Yahweh wanted them to steal supplies for Armageddon? Ryan told them yes, but only from those who weren't chosen. Ryan could sense their hesitancy. He knew what was needed to convince them. 
Ryan asked Jimmy to hold out his arm. He had gradually introduced the men to the arm test. At first, like Wickstrom in his demonstration, he'd questioned them about fasting and repentance. But the technique soon evolved into a way to test their faith in Yahweh. He even used it to predict the future. To do this, Ryan would ask a member to hold out their arm and then ask aloud if something was going to happen. The rising or falling of the arm would astonishingly confirm whatever Ryan wanted to predict, usually a small coincidence that was easy to guess. Like children using a Ouija board, the men didn't even know they were complicit in the con. The test took an odd kind of hold of them. After all, the men had lived lives of debt and fear, broken families, financial ruin. It was comforting to have assurances and answers, to be personally led by a divine prophet of Yahweh. Ryan was more than eager to oblige. Knowingly or not, Andreas, Thim, and Haverkamp had surrendered control of their thoughts and emotions to Michael Ryan. In just under a year, one of them would die for it. Coming up, Michael Ryan draws in more allies as his mentor ascends to countrywide notoriety. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1983, James Thim, David Andreas, and Jimmy Haverkamp split off from the white supremacist group Posse Comitatus. Their new faction was strictly controlled by 35-year-old Michael Ryan. The three men believed Ryan had a direct line to Yahweh. So when Ryan told them God had commanded them to arm themselves by any means necessary, the men started stealing. Their first target was Nate Babcock's home. Babcock was a local farmer who was also a member of Posse Comitatus. But in Ryan's assessment, he was no longer chosen. Therefore, Ryan and his group broke in through the back door of Babcock's home and took his guns along with shotgun shells. They ransacked cabinets and desk drawers. A VCR and the Wickstrom videotape Ryan had once watched it in were stolen as well. But spearheading his sacred crime spree was not the only thing that Ryan was excited about. Posse Comitatus was growing in notoriety, along with the person who ran it. Michael and Ruth Ryan were on the couch when the man who'd taken him under their wing strode onto the set of a popular daytime talk show. James Wickstrom was on national TV. Earlier that year, Gordon Call, a retired farmer in the Posse Comitatus, engaged in a shootout with police in North Dakota. A U.S. Marshal and his deputy had been killed. The ensuing manhunt drew serious headlines. James Wickstrom appeared on the talk show Phil Donahue to defend the shooter's actions. Wickstrom claimed Call was a victim of overzealous law enforcement. He insisted the shooter could have been arrested peacefully. Michael Ryan shouted in agreement from his couch. If at all possible, his respect for Wickstrom was reaching new heights. For Ryan, Wickstrom's ascension to the national spotlight was cause for celebration. But the circumstances that put him there instilled a paranoid sense of urgency in Ryan. He felt the call shooting was an indication of Satan on the move. The battle of the wheat fields was coming. Their ranks would need to grow. The first of their new recruits was Olin Richardson Stice. 27-year-old Olin Stice, or Rick as he was called, was going broke. 
The hog business was the only thing keeping his family afloat. His 80-acre farm in Rulo, Nebraska, had always yielded enough crops to put food on the table for his wife, Sandra, and their three kids. But when heavy rains washed away the herbicides on his corn and the family dropped their health insurance to cover loans from the bank, life took a turn for the worse. And all that was before Sandra got cancer. Diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, there was no way for Rick to pay for the treatment his wife needed. Searching for answers, he and Sandra began to attend local posse comitatus meetings. After all the Stice's financial difficulties, the group's anti-tax, anti-government sentiments were not a hard sell. But more than anything, the Stice's needed a faith healer. At that point, faith was all they had. They soon found the answer to their prayers via David Andreas, a member of Ryan's inner circle, who they met at Bible study. He introduced the couple to a holistic doctor associated with Reverend Wickstrom. They appreciated the help. But months later, Sandra Stice was dead. A desolate Rick was left with three children. His youngest, Luke, was only four years old. It was a dark time. Stice might not have gotten through it were it not for his new friends, Andreas, Jimmy Haverkamp, and Michael Ryan. In the latter half of 1983, grief-stricken and poor, Rick Stice was drawn deeply into their world. In the fall of 1983, Michael Ryan gathered his new friends for a survivalist retreat in Tigerton Dells, Wisconsin. Joining him on the road trip were Jimmy Haverkamp, James Thim, and Rick Stice. Ryan could hardly contain his excitement. His mentor, Wickstrom, had been everywhere since the call shooting, even on Larry King. The survivalist compound impressed Ryan, and then some. What was once the Tigerton Dells Resort was now a guerrilla war training camp, tucked away on the banks of the hilly Embarrass River. A sign at the front gate welcomed visitors, federal agents keep out, survivors will be prosecuted. The gathering was more than 200 strong, most of them in battle fatigues. The attendees were a mix of Ku Klux Klan and right-wing radicals. Ryan and his three associates squeezed into the meeting hall just as James Wickstrom began his sermon. We are the posse comitatus, the power of the country, and we will return the white Anglo-Saxon Christians to their rightful control of America. The crowd cheered as Wickstrom launched into a rant against taxes, but Ryan was unmoved by the rhetoric. It was the survivalist training that mainly interested him. Yahweh's War of the Wheat Fields was approaching. Ryan had come prepared. He had field gear, camouflage paint, combat boots, machetes, even a bunch of fake hand grenades. Ryan would not be caught off guard for the battle ahead, and whining about taxes and foreclosures was not getting the job done. Not wanting the trip to be a complete disappointment, Ryan looked to get some face time with Wickstrom before they left. The group sought out the reverend in his quarters. Wickstrom was happy to see them assembled as a unit. He couldn't stress enough how important it was for believers to stick together. The men assured him they were. They told him about their gear, their guns. The reverend was pleased. But as they headed out, he pulled Ryan aside. Wickstrom took his hand, looked Michael Ryan in the eyes, and said, It's time to gather your own flock. 
Jimmy Haverkamp, David Andreas, James Thim, and Rick Stice drove back home with Michael for a little under an hour. Then Ryan asked them to pull the car over. He needed to talk to Yahweh. He and Haverkamp stepped to the side of the road. Drivers speeding by must have wondered what kind of bizarre game the two men were playing. Ryan, one hand on Haverkamp's shoulder, the other on his wrist, asked, Yahweh, is there something you want me to tell these men? The arm answered, yes. Ryan got back in the car. He needed his friends to know the truth. Yahweh needed them to know. And Ryan told them he was the Archangel Michael, God's angel of war, and he would be their marshal, leading them into the war of the wheat fields. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Michael Ryan. We'll hear how Michael Ryan's influence over Posse Comitatus members and their families grew, resulting in untold terror and tragedy on a hog farm in Nebraska. For more information on Michael Ryan and his path to cult leadership, amongst the many sources we used, we found Rod Colvin's book, Evil Harvest, the true story of cult murder and the American heartland, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Cults was written by Matt Flanagan with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.